welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for joining our call today. My name is Alan Hunter. I am a client advisor with J.P. Morgan's Institutional Defined Contribution Team. For those of you that have been living under a rock for the past eight months, 2020 has been somewhat of a challenging year for investors. The COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked havoc across regions, across asset classes, and of course, across portfolios. Even the most seasoned investors, I think, are taking pause as they evaluate the landscape to assess threats, but also to identify opportunities. We're here today to talk about what 2020 means for defined contribution investors. More specifically, what it means for target date funds and target date fund construction. With 90% plus of USDC plans offering a target date fund and close to 40% of US participant assets invested in target date funds, we think it's an important question to ask. To help me provide perspective on that, I've asked two colleagues to join our call today. The first is Lynn Avatopoulos. Lynn is an investment specialist with our multi-asset solutions team. This is the team that manages J.P. Morgan's Smart Retirement Target Date Series. The second is Ben Christensen, an investment specialist for J.P. Morgan's fixed income platform. Lynn and Ben, welcome. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. Lynn, perhaps I'll pick on you first. To state the obvious, there's a lot that goes into building a globally diversified multi-asset portfolio with a time horizon of some 40 years. You and your team are looking at markets. You're thinking about asset allocation, underlying manager selection, risk and return trade-offs, amongst many other things. Can you talk for a minute about that process and about the inputs that go into building the Smart Retirement Glad Path and how you're factoring in the volatility that we've seen so far this year? Sure. Thank you, Alan. Having anticipated, I think with most people, a much more sanguine market scenario for 2020 when we were coming into the end of 2019, which at this point seems like a lifetime ago. Here we are again dealing with another unprecedented situation. It seems like every time we have one of these, it's a new unprecedented situation. When we think about funds, though, recent market performance is important, obviously, when you're managing through short-term volatility. But to design a solution that's meant to last through market events like these over a 40-year forward-looking timeframe, we need to consider a number of other things, including participant behavior, the long-term capital markets assumptions, any of our underlying manager capabilities, and of course, whether or not we have both active and passive opportunities at our fingertips to implement the portfolios. Let's talk about that fixed income component there. You just mentioned that a minute ago, and I don't think there's anybody better to do that than Ben, our resident expert in all things fixed income. Ben, what is it about the fixed income space that lends itself to active adding value? Sure. I think it's actually a really interesting discussion and with a bit of detail, perhaps provides some new light for folks listening in that may not have been considered before. When we talk about passive, most people's starting point is their experience in equities. But bond indexing is a very different proposition than equity indexing. Equity indices capture the majority of U.S. public markets. The crisp U.S. total market index, for example, which is the benchmark for one of the industry's largest total stock market funds, 
covers 99% of U.S. public equities. The S&P 500 that we're all familiar with covers about 80 or so percent. It's a good representation of that equity market. So with equities as your starting point, there's an assumption that passive investing always gives you, quote unquote, the market for whichever sector that you're looking at. But that's not really true. In fixed income, the S&P 500 equivalent is the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Index. It's the benchmark that features prominently in nearly every plan's core fixed income allocation. But here's the really stunning fact. The ag only captures 51% of the U.S. bond market. It is not the holistic, well-diversified portfolio that most assume it to be. And in fact, the ag and passive strategies that are bound to following it know nothing about the investment outcome that core fixed income investors are seeking. This isn't an index that is constructed around delivering a desired investment objective. Rather, it's simply a rules-based methodology that blindly aggregates issuance from three primary fixed income sectors. And so the question emerges, how can that be? The ag is so widely used. You've got 460 mutual funds with $1.2 trillion tagged to it. How can it be not what we think it is? Well, Before it was the Bloomberg Barclays Ag, it was the Barclays Ag. And before it was the Barclays Ag, it was the Lehman Ag. This was never a benchmark created by fiduciaries. Instead, it was a product designed by an investment bank. And even with that, it was designed a long time ago. The Ag was created actually in 1986. And it was the first time that there was enough computer power that could be harnessed to track and report the daily prices for the bond market which at the time was comprised of three major categories, U.S. treasuries, large investment-grade corporates, and this newfangled thing called agency MBS. Remember this about fixed income. With equities, we can all take a trip, or we used to be able to take a trip to the NYSE and see an exchange. Equities trade on exchange, and you have pretty good tracking of price information in real time. Bonds have never traded on an exchange, not in 1986 and not today. They trade OTC, and particularly back then, it was difficult to observe and track the price changes for a wide swath of the market. The ag was really then meant to do that. It was a tracking tool that was offered for the very first time. But the ag's construction has stayed largely the same, and despite the last 35 years of advancements in financial markets, in many ways, it's just what it was in 1986, and that's becoming quite antiquated. There are, quite simply, better ways to create portfolios for the investment outcome that fixed income investors are seeking. That's what active managers in the core and core plus space strive to do. Here, Alan, is really the thing that hits home for me. It's the results. The results are quite telling. Across the industry, this is not just J.P. Morgan, but industry-wide, when you look at actively managed core and core plus offerings, they outperform the ag about 90% of the time. 90%. And that is net of fees. I think that is why the active discussion in fixed income is so different than what a lot of folks are used to exploring in other sectors. So let's talk a little bit more about how that's possible. How is it possible that an active strategy can outperform the industry's primary benchmark 90% of the time? Well, we know first and foremost 
that about half of the opportunity set in fixed income is simply missing from the index. So there's a very easy way to go after more opportunity. You have a much wider field to choose from, double that of what the ad can. But then beyond that, let's talk about the construction process. So equities are typically market cap weighted or market value weighted indices, and the ag is too. But market value weighting leads to very different consequences in equity versus fixed income. Let's look at equity first. A given company has a higher weighting in the S&P 500 because of its market cap. And in an equity space, how do we determine that? Well, it's price times shares outstanding. What's the variable in that equation that moves day to day? Price. Shares outstanding don't move very much. And price reacts if you have something like a stock split. So every day, investors get to vote on price based on EPS, growth outlooks, and the overall health of a given sort of outlook for a company and its prospects. So it's the price that's changing there, and that's driving the market value weighting. What about fixed income? It's market value weighting, but the component, the variable in the equation that moved is completely opposite. The equivalent of price times shares outstanding for bond markets is price times debt outstanding. But what do you know about bonds? Well, investment-grade rated bonds, the price doesn't move all that much from par, 100. A little bit up and down, but price isn't moving. So what's the big variable that drives the market value weighting? It's the debt outstanding. In fixed income, market value weighting means that you're always overweight to the most indebted borrowers. And that's not always the best investment idea. So the question naturally turns to who has been borrowing most over the past 10 years and how has that impacted the ag? Well, first and foremost, it's been the U.S. government. You think about the binge of government offerings in the treasury space that have made their way into the ag since the financial crisis, and it's been dramatic. The allocation to treasuries in the ag has actually jumped about 15% or so over the last 10 years used to be about 25% of the ag, and simply because the government has been issuing more and more paper, that's upward of nearly 40% today. Add that together with agency MBS, the government-guaranteed paper in that mortgage space, and today almost 70% of the ag is government-related. Corporations have also borrowed significant sums in the post-financial crisis world to fund buybacks and M&A, And a lot of those have been down in quality. So the credit quality of the IG corporate sector in the ag has deteriorated over time, as a lot of triple B issuers have issued in that space. About half of the ag's credit exposure right now to corporates is to triple B rated investment grade names. That low spread and low rate environment has encouraged issuers to borrow for longer periods of time. And that's also dragged up the duration of the benchmark used to be about four and a half to five years. And now we're trading up at around six years of duration, almost the most on record. And this leaves the ag with a problem, really. You have more risk, that of duration, and much less yield. Yield on the ag today is hovering just around 1%. So I think it's important as well to then consider the elements of risk and reward in fixed income. Fixed income returns are a function of two things, coupon you receive in a given year, or let's call that yield, 
and the change in price of the portfolio, the bonds that are in the portfolio, and changing prices are a direct result of changes or sensitivity to interest rates. Today, 90% of the ag's risk is to changes in interest rates. And that's because that duration has gone up so much and there's so little yield left to offset any of that movement. Investors' memory of the ag is actually from a very different time. If you look back through time, what you'll find is that the ag's coupon or yield used to deliver around 6, 6.2%. You go back and you run the historic numbers. Seems like a lot in today's market. But it was about 6% and a four and a half year duration. That gave you a lot of cushion for any movement in interest rates before you'd eat through a given year's coupon return. Today, the yield is just around 1%. And with a duration of six years, that means that a move of just 17 basis points higher in interest rates destroys an entire year's worth of coupon return. In other words, if you bought the ag today and you were expecting to earn 1% for the next year, if interest rates rise 17 basis points, it destroys the entirety of your coupon return. Your return would be expected to be zero. Anything more than 17 basis points, and you're now actually in a negative total return area. So it's quite a different starting point and one that we have to adjust for, I think, within target date plans. And that's where active management comes in. We're able to control those levers. We don't have to blindly follow the rules of the ag. And so actively managed strategies can actually navigate the dynamics at play and invest more deliberately for the environment at hand. Quickly, the example that I think of Core Plus, which features in our smart retirement lineups, Core Plus delivers double the yield of the ag today. It uses parts of that 50% that are simply missing from the ag, and it also is looking to intelligently allocate to sectors that offer what we believe are a better risk-reward profile. That's a lot to think about. But as I'm sort of parsing through those comments, then. I don't know if you said this word, but what I wrote down is flexibility, that active management in this space brings that degree of flexibility that you don't, or maybe I should say you can't find necessarily in the ag, an ag to your point that is facing questions around diversification. There's structural concentration embedded in there that's facing some concerns around quality. And as you did mention too, longer duration with lower yield. I think all of that is important to consider when you're evaluating the space. But just to summarize some of what I've heard today, Again, 2020 has been a challenging environment, and that is across both equities and fixed income. But as I think about the toolbox that plan sponsors have, and then think about the individual tools within that toolbox to help participants on this journey, I look at active fixed income very much as a meaningful and measurable value add when you're thinking about options to put participants on that path to successful outcomes. And we certainly hope that this call has been helpful just to shine a light on how that is specifically. So, Ben, maybe let me ask a question. We're thinking about opportunities and risks going forward. We're coming out of a very interesting environment for fixed income investors. You talked a little bit earlier about the impact of a rise in rates to the ag. From what we can tell, rates are going to stay low for the foreseeable future. So, how do you and the broader fixed income platform think about risks and opportunities? in that type of environment? 
Sure. I think yield is what comes to everyone's mind in this environment. And how do you get it appropriately without overextending yourself from a risk perspective? Going longer in duration no longer works all that well. The curve simply doesn't pay you all that much from a historical perspective to move out. Credit spreads have tightened in notably, though you can, of course, move into extended sectors, and we've seen some of that done. But to do it responsibly, one of the areas that we're focused most on right now, particularly in the context of a core or core plus type strategy, is what can be done in the agency mortgage space. So as a reminder, agency mortgages or agency MBS are those backed by an implicit or explicit government guarantee through the likes of Freddie, Fannie, and and Ginny, and then back up to the U.S. government. Agency MBS comprises about a third of the Barclays AG at the index level. So it's a very substantial component and pillar within the AG. But we find that there's a better way to create, again, that mousetrap. In the ag, there are what are called pass-through securities, meaning that you get just a very generic representation of residential mortgages, the principal and interest that gets passed through in its entirety. There are ways, though, to be more selective rather than generic in taking on that type of exposure. One of the features of agency MBS is that we all know homeowners have the ability to prepay their mortgage at any point in time with no penalty. You might decide you want to buy a new house and move or rates fall and you want to refinance. When you do that as a homeowner, your mortgage gets taken out of the pool that is supporting the agency MBS. So agency MBS investors are then naturally exposed to rates falling. Rates fall, there's a higher propensity for folks to refi and the asset to get called away. Well, we dig through what are called specified pools, essentially groupings of mortgages with very specific characteristics. With a well-resourced research team that does nothing but this, we're able to go through and identify characteristics that reduce those prepayment risks, that reduce the speed at which people are incentivized to prepay. Think at a very simple level about the loan balance on a mortgage in general. It's kind of like using a coupon at a store, if you will, refinancing. If you have a coupon to use at a store and it is for a new computer, a big ticket item, you're probably going to use that 10% off coupon. You'll make sure of it. You have that same 10% off coupon for a box of cereal at the store, and you may just kind of forget to take that to the checkout counter. There's not as much incentive on a dollar term basis, even though the percent savings is the same. We find the same exact dynamic at play in agency mortgages. The hassle of refinancing your mortgage is worth it when you have a large loan balance. You've borrowed $500,000 on your mortgage. You're very likely to refinance as soon as you can if rates drop 1%. You've only got twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 left on your mortgage and rates drop 1%. The benefit to you in dollar terms may not be great enough to actually get you to move and go through all the hoops and get your documentation in order to refinance. So one of the spaces that we're really focused on right now is finding those good pools of mortgages, particularly where the cash flows appear more certain to us, where there are lower likelihoods of people repaying, things like low loan balance mortgages so that we can continue to clip those coupons and bring in that spread, even in a low-rate environment. 
We also like them because they're up in quality. Right now, credit quality is top of mind. We've seen an explosion of risk on sentiment throughout all markets. When you look and peel back the cover, the fundamentals underneath are a bit more challenged. And so we've moved our portfolios up in quality, again, to sort of position for the fundamentals that will eventually, in our opinion, come around and be part of the narrative on pricing. What do we find when we are looking at that individual behavior? Is there anything that stands out to us particularly that we then factor into how we're thinking about glide path construction? So maybe, Lynn, can I ask you that question? Sure, yeah, thanks. So as I noted, we look at a number of data points from participants. We have about 2.5 million in a database that we have access to through MassMutual, an original in-house record keeper that is now part of Empower. And the data points we look at, as I said, include a number of things. So their salaries, the frequency of their raises, their loans, how often they take loans, percentage of the balance that the loan reflects, loan sum withdrawals, both before and after retirement, among other things. And that gives us a lot of information that is actually really important to knowing how to manage the money. It tells you how long you have it, for starters. So why do we think it's 25 to 65? Because the data shows us time and time again over a 20-year period that the majority of people take their money out of these funds within three years, plus or minus the retirement age of 65. I think the reason that's an important differentiator, and I emphasize the word people, is because there are a lot of studies out there that say that a lot of these assets remain in the fund. And I think that's true. If you look at assets, you'll find that the majority of those assets are probably going to accrue to people who are holding onto those for RMDs, required minimum distributions. The people that we find that we serve in our funds need that money to produce income when they retire. They're not leaving it there for an additional five years. So that's one differentiator that we've identified. The other is if you're going to create a lot of cash flow volatility, and we see loans happening between about the ages of 40 to 52, if I remember correctly, that's a period of time when when you're thinking about how that glide path should start to approach its allocation to offset that additional risk, incorporating that additional cash flow volatility is an important part of the process to determine what should that asset allocation look like and what should the glide look like through that period of time. We also have some other sources of data in addition to that, which we use for not necessarily direct input into these funds, but to continue to educate ourselves as to whether or not what we think people are doing, we can actually see and to understand better the people we're solving for in the retirement space so that we can get a bigger, more holistic view of the way they handle their money full stop. And that source is the Chase branch data. As you may or may not know, about half of American households bank with Chase. And when we clean that data to the point where we can clearly see the vast majority of the financial transactions anonymously, obviously, we have millions of records to work with. Thank you, Lynn. Certainly a lot to consider. And let me say to Lynn and Ben, thank you both for your comments today. Really important as we think about, again, the tools that plan sponsors have in their toolbox when they think about the targeted funds that are out there and what will give participants value as they navigate current market environments and all those they will encounter over a very long time horizon. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale 
professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP, Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe S, A Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth.
by JP Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase and Company All Rights Reserved.